Up next, you'll hear the amazing story of Anthony Smith and Anthony's journey in becoming the executive director of Cities United. Cities United is a national network focused on helping cities work better with their communities to create a comprehensive public safety strategy. And not only does Anthony want to keep black men and children alive, but create a space for them to grow by slowly investing in the prevention and intervention and move away from jails and detention centers. And it's only then Anthony believes we can start moving other community members that know how to keep the family safe, healthy, and hopeful. Enjoy the show. Cities United started, uh, we actually are celebrating our 10th year anniversary. Uh, so it got started in 2011. There was a conversation, uh, Dr. Bell from uh, the Casey Family Programs happened to be in Philadelphia with Mayor Nutter, uh, who was the mayor then. And they had a conversation and Mayor Nutter was saying to Dr. Bell, I have way too many young black men dying in my, in my city. Uh, I don't have a place where I can go to talk to other mayors. I talk to other folks about solutions and how we change that. Uh, so from that conversation, they had a few more with their teams and built out what is now Cities United. Uh, they asked Mayor Landrew, who was the mayor of New Orleans, to join them. They also brought in uh, Sean Dove, who was running the campaign for Black Girl Achievement and then the National League of Cities and really said, how do we create this space and this, and this uh, uh, place where mayors and their teams can go and really understand the best strategies to reduce violence in their communities uh, and to create safe, healthy and hopeful communities. So our theme and our tagline really is Cities United. Uh, we're committed to creating safe, healthy and hopeful communities. Again, starting with this vision of what you want for young people uh, and not about what they're going through and what's happening in their lives now. So we want to create a space that's safe, healthy, and hopeful. Uh, so it ran as an initiative for about five years with all of those national partners coming together, using their teams to kind of move it along. And in 2015, I came on board to build it out uh, as the first ED and the first executive director for the organization. Uh, and has really, over the last five, almost six years, taken their vision and put programmatic stuff around it and some structure around it and a team around it, which now we're at about a team of 17 uh, folks. And over the last 10 years, we worked with over 130 cities. And it really is, again, our goal is just to come in and help cities work better with their communities to create a comprehensive public safety strategy uh, that we believe that would not only keep kids alive, but create space for them to grow. Uh, and for them to realize what their what their purpose is and live out that purpose. Uh, and we do that in partnership with cities because mayors and cities have convening power, but also have policy power, but also have their budget, right? They, they, they allocate the budget so we can get them to really think about public safety in a different way. We believe that they will still invest in, in the prevention and intervention and not so much in law enforcement. Uh, and move away from the jails, detention centers, and law enforcement and start moving to the things that you and I and other community members know that really keep our families safe, healthy, and hopeful. Quality education, 
affordable and safe housing, access to uh, livable wage jobs, great transportation to maneuver through the city, right? So all of those things that we know the communities have lacked is what we're asking mayors and their teams and the cities to invest in uh, so that we can see a different outcome for our people. I know that Minneapolis has been um, part of Cities United for a while. Do you remember where we sort of came in? Was it under Mayor Hodges? Yeah, it was under Mayor Hodges. Uh, and it was, I believe, when I came on in 2015, we had already decided to come to Minneapolis for our convening. We do an annual convening in 2016. So I think Mayor Hodges has been around since about 2014 is when she probably joined. Okay. Uh, so it came in under her leadership and we've been a partner ever since. And what are ways that you have partnered with, with the city? Like how does it look just like on the ground? Absolutely. So a couple of things we've done. One we've done when Mayor Hodges was in office, we came in and helped her think about her collaborative public safety uh, strategy that she was putting in place. She called me one day and said, I want to, I've got $500,000 that I want to split between two communities. And I want to make sure that it gets to uh, folks who want to do some upstream work over the summer that I've heard from my community and they want to be a part of the public safety strategy. So we came in and helped her really build that out and helped her figure out the strategy to get money uh, to community partners who wanted to do the work over the summer. Uh, we spent some time when Nicole, when she was there before she went to the state, really helping her think through her strategy uh, as she was building out the violence prevention strategy before uh, from Mayor Hodges' office. Uh, but over the last couple of years under Mayor Fry, we have been working in partnership with Sasha and the team and really helping her think through uh, the build out of her office, but then also the strategy and her plan that she's going to be putting in place. Uh, so again, we, you know, Minneapolis was one of the first cities with uh, a youth violence prevention plan when you all had the blueprint out. Mm -hmm. uh, so we believe that that needs to be rebranded, updated, and really pushed back out to the community because you all were leaders in this work for a long time and, and have the potential to get back into that mode. Uh, so we come in and just serve as an advisor and, and uh, help folks convene. But our main goal is to work with the city staff to help them be better prepared to work with community. Mm -hmm. uh, the beauty about where you all now is y'all have a team of folks who work in that office who have really, really tight community relationships and can maneuver in ways that a lot of cities can't. Uh, but still, you know, the stress of uh, the murder of George Floyd and the other stuff has kind of uh, made the office do other things. Yeah, uh, that are part of public safety, but uh, while still trying to focus on the, the, the task at hand. But this is why I wanted to talk to you because of everything that we've been going through and then the surge of violence, talking about compounded grief, our young people are going through it, the uncertainty of what's happening in the world. And for those, those young people particularly, or even some of the adults that really didn't have a sense of hope before, with the conditions and what we're witnessing right now, it feels like, you know, there needs to be some clear interventions that allow them to see a future. Yeah. No, uh, and, and that's the, you know, we, when you think about the work that we do at Cities United and, and other places and across the country, and, you know, the push for us is always to make this bigger than violence prevention and make it really about that, Shonda. It's how do we create space for the young people who we know are most at risk 
to see what's possible and to believe what's possible and to help them get to what's possible, right? Because uh, when we talk to folks, it's like it's one thing to keep people alive, but what are you doing to help them thrive and see a vision, right? Because we've not changed that yet, right? We we know to a degree how to interrupt balance, right? You know, with the different models that are there, but we've not disrupted the systems that created that space. We have not figured out how do we make sure that young kids, young black kids and young brown kids can get the best education where they feel engaged and feel supported and feel like they're supposed to be there and not pushed out, mm-hmm. right? Because we've been watching the same things happen in the same communities at the same schools for decades, for centuries, right? You know, in most neighborhoods and most communities we go into, folks can take me to the neighborhood that has experienced homicides and trauma over you. And they look the same no matter where you go. They had dealt with urban renewal. They had dealt with redlining. They have dealt with disinvestment. And then they can also point to me the same schools where kids don't get the best outcomes, right? So until we can shift those things, it's hard for me to believe young people are going to see themselves in the future. So why not live the best life I can now? Why not engage in things that I know that are going to make me happy now because I don't see myself in the future? Yeah. So as part of what you're suggesting here is that we do have good strategies to interrupt violence. What we don't have is hold on stopping the pipeline. Right? Right. That's it. Right. Yeah, we don't have the prevention and intervention work figured out in a way that's inclusive of all, right? We have not figured out how to do a lot of the prevention and intervention work, uh, it's mostly prevention work that would keep young people from getting into the cycle and the pipeline of balance. And we've been terrible at once I decided that that's, I've committed some stuff, I've done some wrong stuff. How do I then now come back in, right? We we reentry and, and restoration and re, uh, and restoring folks has been a bad process for us too, right? So I make a mistake. You want to hold it against me for the rest of my life, so I can't get a job, can't get school. So there's just all these things that we as a country have been so punitive about, uh, and it starts in kindergarten when we can suspend you. In kindergarten, right, we're already telling you that, you know, your actions have made you an outsider and outside of the realm. So therefore, and that continues on down the pike, right? So we 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 just have not been able to, and I don't understand it. Uh, well, I do understand, but we've just not have been able to, are willing to make this system work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what do you understand about it? Like what... <laughs> That the powers that be, the institutional racism and the, and, and the way the, this works is that it benefits folks, right? We've built industries off of uh, not giving uh, young Black and brown kids the right opportunities, right? We've got detention centers, we've got jails, we've got prisons, we've got a whole industry that's waiting to take them in, because we have not figured out what's up. We, we've not been willing to figure out what's up front and face this country's racist policies that create these environments to happen, right? You know, here in Louisville, where I, we're headquarters and where I live, we have been 
fighting our school system to change their codes to say you would stop suspending elementary age kids, right? You will not suspend them, right? We would figure out another way to help get them back on track or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and there's still school board members who want that policy to stay the same as it is because they believe those kids deserve to be suspended from school. And instead of trying to figure out how they got to where they are, you just want to have a tool to punish them and not figure out how to help them. Right. So we have institutions that are ready to take them in and institutions that are pushing them out. <laughs> yep. There you go. Institutions that push them out do it because they don't want them there. Institutions that take them in do it because they can make money off of them. Yeah, I remember reading, I think it was a report that the Children's Defense Fund put out a while mm -hmm. ago. And I remember this one page in the report where there's a little kid um, going into a courtroom and um, couldn't see over the table that was in court uh, for something that they did in school. And it just broke my heart. What kind of sense does that make? I mean, it's, right. it seems to be making a lot of sense to a lot of people. And again, it's because of our perception of what public safety is, our perception of what, how folks need to be punished and controlled have been this way since, you know, we've been here, right? It's been this ideal that some folks need to be contained and controlled, and this is how you do that. And this system continues to do the same thing. And just when you talk about the court system, when I used to work for Mayor Fisher here in Louisville, one of the things I would do, and I was just trying to get a sense of the whole system, would go over to juvenile court. It would sit and watch the cases and watch young people and their families show up because one, they had to, but hopefully still trusting in the system to do the right thing for their kids. And it never happened. Mm. Right. Or you would have parents who was like, I can't figure out what to do with my child. I need help. And then they take them to the court system and then it puts them in that pipeline. But really, I'm just asking for help. Right. And this is the only place I know to go to get help. Yeah. So when you were working with Mayor Hodges, I think that's when we met. Yeah. Because I remember the 250 that went to uh, Cedar Riverside and then I think it was Cedar Riverside and the North Side. Um, I, I, I Little Earth is. Uh, oh, maybe it was Phillips. Yeah, you're right. It was Little Earth in yeah. the north side. Yep. yep. And then yep. Nicole Archibald, who's now yep. working, uh, worked for Mayor Hodges, and now she works for Commissioner Harrington. And then uh, Sasha Cotton, who uh, is the director of the Office of Violence Prevention. Mm -hmm. um, and then the blueprint um, was under <laughs> Mayor Ryback, um, yep. who I work for now, RT. Um, and so we can see sort of the continuum. Um, so, so many outstanding people that have been, and then, you know, Mayor Hodges, there's been so many outstanding people that have been part of this, yet we're in a place where we're not seeing sort of the collective result with the surge of violence. And you mentioned George Floyd, like what, what do you think is happening? Like, I mean, cause there's days, <laughs> Anthony, where you just feel like, I mean, come on, like, like, is it gonna get better? I mean, it's hard sometimes to see the light and I know, and I see the light all the time, as you mentioned, Sasha has incredible 
relationships. Jen White has incredible relationships. I mean, there's people within the city that are doing amazing work. And unfortunately, it's not always highlighted to the extent it needs to be. Yeah. So, you know, a big part of this is, again, it goes back to how we invest, right? Having the blueprint, having an office, having a person and having a vision for it is different than truly invested in it, right? So, uh, and we, this happens across the country, so it's not just in Minneapolis. Uh, this year will be the first year, I think Sasha and her team have truly had resources to do the work that they've been asked to do, right? So when we have this conversation around creating and having wonderful, smart, great people in roles, if they don't have the right resources to do the work, they can only do so much. So Minneapolis has been in the forefront of this work, but has never truly been able to get the office and the folks in the community who are doing the work, the dollars that they need to be as impactful as they could be. When, and when you say resource, are you just talking dollars? Or are you also talking support? I'm talking dollars and support, Okay. right? So there's, a, there's a, the dollars that need to happen that are very important, but there's also a level of importance that needs to be put on this work, which is another reason why we do this work with mayors. We need mayors to be out front every day, having a conversation about what this is, why it matters, and how it can be different, because their job is not to only talk to the folks who are most impacted by it. They need their business leaders, philanthropy leaders, uh, hospital, university leaders, to know that they have a role to play. So the mayor and other elected officials job, in my opinion, is to get everybody else who don't think that this is their issue mm -hmm. to make it their issue. But they also need to make sure that if they're gonna ask a Sasha or a Jen or whoever to do this work, I gotta get you the right resources. And I gotta say to the rest of city government, you need to support this work. So if Sasha comes to Parks and Recs and says this is what she needs, y'all need to help her figure out how to get that done, right? So that political will has got to use its leverage to move to remove the barriers for things to happen. Uh, and I think all of the mayors that we just talked about uh, uh, had uh, saw this as an important thing and saw this as a as a issue that they needed to be talking about, but. There was some other stuff that needed to happen. There's some stuff that needs to happen with their relationship with Metro Council. Mm -hmm. There's some stuff that needs to happen with how they advocate at the state level for this, right? So there's work that's got to happen at all of these different places, and it's just got to stay a focus and a priority. Uh, and one of the things that mayors at times and other elected officials don't help tell the narrative of why we're doing the work the way we're doing it and why it's important. Uh, we can talk about public safety and why we have a police department, but we can't talk about why we have Office of Violence Prevention and what it means and what it's supposed to be doing and how it's supposed to be helpful. Uh, so I think, you know, we've got to get better and elected officials got to get better at telling the story mm -hmm. and raising the awareness of what the issue is uh, so that people can support the offices in a different way. Yeah, and what and how do you frame the argument for people that um, think violence is in neighborhoods that have always been violent with people that are always been violent? Like, I mean, I think that people have relegated it to uh, a neighborhood and to people without necessarily understanding the conditions. Right, that's a whole nother maybe argument. But how do you 
how do you frame it to get people that haven't invested in this issue to be invested or to think about it differently? Yeah, there's multiple ways, right? One is just, you know, we're losing way too damn many of our kids and you should just care about that, right? So there's a moral issue that we, there's no way in hell that you should be okay with this many young people or this many people die every year. You were okay with that. So there's one is that. And two, there's economic impact, right? Uh, the folks in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia controller and other folks have really done the cost of balance and talked about what it cost us as a country. As we're spending way too much money on burying kids, patching them up when they go to the hospital, sending out police, there's just way too much money been spent on this issue that if we spent it on prevention and intervention, we will have better outcomes. So the report that the controller in Philadelphia put out said to Philadelphia that if they spent $30,000 per homicide on prevention and intervention work, over five years, I think it was five years, they will see this amount of reduction in homicides, but they would also see this kind of money coming back into the community from property taxes going up because communities are now safer, uh, more income taxes from the people who were not losing to homicides by working. So there, there's, a, there's a moral case, there's an economic case, uh, and then there's just a, a, a political case because, you know, if we truly want to be the cities that we say we want to be, then we've got to figure out how to not be, not have so many of our people dying in our streets. Right. right? And then I've also, you know, COVID was a curse and a blessing at the same time because it helped people understand how to address a public health crisis that a lot of people just did not understand, right? For a long time, we've been talking about community violence as a public health issue. People did not understand what that means. They did not understand why you need interrupters, who are they, what they do. But then when they saw contract uh, 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 tracers go out and these folks who were able to go say, okay, so-and-so had COVID, who were you around? Let me go tell those folks what they need to be doing. The same thing with violence interrupters. I know Anthony, this is Anthony's crew. Let me help interrupt and get all of them in a space where they can be better, right? So I think, you know, uh, this COVID and pandemic has shown us as a country that we can move differently if we truly want to. Yeah, and the model that you just were talking about is GBI, the Group Violence Intervention, where you identify someone who is um, in trouble or who was a shooter or who was likely to be a shooter. You identify then who they're around. You get them resources, right? You give them an opportunity. You, you let them know that they are not invisible that there is, there, you know, there is a community here that cares about their success um, and their lives. And, and then you bring in people that understand community to support them. Is that how it generally works? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, there, there's the GBI model, you know, then there's other models, right? There's advanced piece, there's uh, the care violence model, oh, yeah. as folks would talk about. And then there's also the hospital-based intervention strategy. And you all have three of those models, I think, up and running now, right? You I think we do. We have Next GBI, Step. Mm -hmm. Next Step, which is the hospital-based. And then you have uh, 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 care violence on the ground. Uh, and they all do different things, right? So you think about the... But yes, to your point, it's that, right? We've got to get to people to get them resources uh, to help them see that there is another way. And they got to be real resources. Uh, they got to be like, it can't be like, I got to go through a 20 week program to get to a job, right? Uh, because nobody's got time for that, right? And we've been doing all of that wrong for a long time too. 
uh, because we make poor people jump through too many damn hoops to get to the services that they need. Uh, uh, so, you know, I think, you know, when we think about it, it's like, how do you have credible, trusted messengers who can be out in community saying to folks who might be the victim or might be the perpetrator, there's another way, mm -hmm. right? These folks are skilled at uh, conflict resolution, mitigation, uh, 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 helping people who might need to leave the city, get out of the city. Right, uh, uh, because it takes all of that to get to a place where we can have more peace in our communities. Uh, but the big piece is that we've got to truly invest differently in our neighborhoods if we want to see a different outcome. Anthony, how did you get to this work? Like, what has been your route? <sighs> That's the, and I, and I tell folks all the time, there was no way in the world that I could have written out a career plan that would have landed me here, right? So uh, one, I, my high school dropout, uh, stayed in school all the way to 12th grade, but never really participated. Uh, got to a place where like in sixth grade where I really knew school was not for me, this traditional way of school, but I always knew I wanted to go to college. I always knew I was gonna graduate some form or fashion. So when I, was uh, when I dropped out, I was pushed out, whatever the term you want to use. I ended up going to get my GED. Uh, then I went to college, went to the community college, ended up graduating from Northern Kentucky. Uh, but all along that way, when I was in college, my thought and process was, I need to find a space where I can be and helpful to young kids who were in a similar situation that I was. Uh, I thought it was a teacher. I thought it, I needed to be a teacher to do that. Learned quickly that teaching was not going to be for me. <laughs> I, I had to go watch classes and watch teachers do their thing. And they're amazing people. And it just was not my thing. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I did the same thing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I love y'all. I appreciate y'all. But I couldn't do that. Right. Uh, so graduated college, ended up working at our local child support office. Uh, but then one day just woke up and said, I need to be in a space where I can help young black kids. I started with young black boys because, you know, I'm a young black man, uh, find their way, right? Those who have dropped out of school, who have graduated and don't know what's next, whatever it is. So I applied for a job that was called back then Project Empower. And I don't know if you remember, it's a part of this Yogi branch that came out of the Department of Labor in mm -hmm. 2000. Uh, and they put a lot of cash in some cities that said to folks, we need you all to help get disconnected youth back connected. You know, opportunity youth back in the day yeah. was called disconnected youth, right? So I started that and I started doing that as outreach, uh, like in communities, talking to young people, getting them connected to resources, bringing them into our shop and helping them find their way. And then from there, it just continued to move, right? Went from there to help it open up another youth center. And then while I was there, some friends of mine asked me if I wanted to come and do some uh, organizing around in some neighborhoods. We had an NEE Casey grant in Louisville at the time. It was called Making Connections. I don't know if you remember those grants. Uh, so I went and did that and served as a director organizing there uh, and was hoping, you know, us organize family, build power in communities and help people think about education and employment. And uh, all of a sudden we were at the mayor's office one day uh, and the mayor had, we had just experienced a triple homicide in Louisville. Uh, the mayor had pulled together a work group. They spent about six months thinking about what the, we need to be doing differently as a city. And he created an office called Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. And they mm -hmm. were looking for their first director. 
Uh, somebody in the office, uh, Sadiq Reynolds in the office, asked me if I wanted, if I was going to be applying for it or looking for it. Uh, and I applied for the job, went through an extensive interview with a lot of other people, ended up being the one. Uh, and that's, you know, did that for three years and then Cities United came along, right? One of the first things I had to do when I worked for the mayor's office was uh, join Cities United, right? So it was sitting on my desk when I got there, the mayor said he wanted to be a part of it. I joined this thing called Cities United, got really engaged in it and was like really, really like impressed with this national movement talking about young black men and boys in the way that they were talking about it. Uh, uh, and joined the national planning team. Uh, it was on the planning team when we made the announcement that we were looking for an executive director. Did not apply originally. Uh, somebody called me and said, are you gonna apply for this job? So I did, and then that's how I ended up here. Again, it's like I could have never have written this because most of the things that I've been able to do were not there until it was time for it to be there. That makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And um, I think the point I want to elevate in all of that, which is quite amazing, and I have a lot to say about how leadership um, looks and who the experts are in work, Mm-hmm. is also not always aligned with um, your route to post-secondary education. Like we right. recognize that it's important, but, you know, I've said this on the podcast before is that, um, you know, I got my job at Pillsbury United Communities and I applied for one job, you know, and I didn't have my college degree. And they were like, you know, do you mean, did you mean to apply for this? Because this job requires it. And I'm like, actually, I did. And what I've read is what you want accomplished. I can, oh. right? Like, I can do what you want to get done. You have to decide whether or not you think I'm right, right? Like, I mean, if that's your indication, um, you know, whatever. But, you know, I'm so thankful that they allowed me to come in, right? That they saw the talent that I brought to the table because I went into that organization in uh, 2000. I became the CEO in 2011 and I was able to get my undergrad and my master's while I was there. I'm not sure there was another environment that would have nurtured me in my mind. I don't know if it, you know, because it also allowed me to be the mom I needed to be. Right. Um, But I think that there's so much that is similar in our story, including um, this you know, I wasn't in sixth grade when I realized that school wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And I finished like I was real close to like <laughs> the hell with it. But um, and I tell people I was I was smart. I just didn't appreciate always how things went down in, in, in the school. Um, and so can you just talk about like, how did you know that school wasn't for you in sixth grade? Yeah, so I, I, I appreciate all that too. I think that's the thing, right? And when I look at leadership now in my role, it's not really about the papers. It's about you and the work and can you get this done? Uh, to your point, I value education. I think it's important, but I also value work and ethics and you know all of that good stuff. But I think, one, I'm really not good at structure in a way that's so rigid. Uh, and then two, I did not really truly see myself in any of the things that was happening at school, right? So I would walk into a space, uh, see other kids who look like me, but not see us portrayed or talked about or engaged in a way that made me feel like this was a place that I was supposed to be. 
right? So when I got to a place where I could disconnect, still be in there, but disconnect enough not to get in trouble at home, uh, except for when report cards came in. Uh, it's just that that ideal of this ideal of the structure and, and this 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 movement in a traditional way just didn't work for me, right? And I, and, and it was a thing that came out of me early. And you know, my mom talks about it now. She's like, you know, we used to fight about it, right? She's like, you know, I knew you could get good grades because you did when I promised you stuff and when you needed stuff. Uh, but you was just so hard-headed about this thing called school that we had to get to a place where she had to get to a place. Uh, I didn't think I had a choice in any of getting to a place that she had to let me grow and be who I was going to be and figure the world out. Uh, and having that kind of support made it easier too, right? To be able to say, okay, when they pulled me in uh, on the last day of school, I think, uh, when I was in the 12th, supposed to be in the 12th grade, when I had been in school for 12 years and said, you know, you hit 18, there's no real reason for you to come back. You only have this many credits. I uh, did not feel like a uh, rejection because I think I'd already felt that throughout the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. It actually felt like a relief. Okay. Right. Where I don't have to do this shit no more. Right. I can go do what I think I need to do. And I was working at the time, thought I was making good money. I was working at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and the reason that that's important, though, is that I was at Chuck E. Cheese. I had turned 21, and they had this assistant manager position open. And I wanted it. And they're like, you got to have a high school diploma or a GED to get it, right? So I walked out. When he got my GED, it was one of the quickest things I think I ever did, right? It's like you... Back in the day, they, did, they make it harder now to get your GED. I had to go take a, the TAVE assessment, pass that, and then they say, come and take the test, and I passed that. Uh, and uh, so it's like this, without me working at Chuck E. Cheese, I don't know how long it would have took me to get my GED, mm -hmm. right? Because I was comfortable, but this idea that I wanted more and always wanted more uh, pushes me to move in that direction. And I think the thing that I take from my mom all the time is that she just has such a strong work ethic and she was always in school, right? So she's a nurse, she's an RN, and she had always been in school my whole life, right? From LPN to RN to a BA. So all of these things that she kept doing, but all along working. So I knew it was possible and I knew I was going to do it, but I just had to find my own way. And I think that's the struggle for me is that we have created these pathways that we think all kids are supposed to walk along. And instead of trying to figure out how to help those kids who that doesn't work for, we try to force them to fit into it until they feel like they got to either drop out or we push them out. We're so mad at it, we just kick them out. When I was uh, at Pillsbury United Communities, we authorized charter schools. Mm. And one of the things, so number one, we were the probably one of the most criticized authorizers in the state. Wow. Um, because of the performance broadly of the students right on paper in terms of MCAs or whatever norm test. Mm -hmm. But what I appreciated the most about our portfolio is that we actually came in at middle and, and secondary ed, which a lot of folks don't want to take a risk on kids that have already gotten so behind. Mm -hmm. um, we did have some elementary schools. I get that that's a little bit of a different case, but um, one of the schools that I loved, um, I loved them all, but I really loved high school recording arts. Um, and there were other schools where really the, the school's goal was to get the kids like you were that had already disconnected 
that maybe even dropped out earlier that maybe had gone back and forth to like a juvenile detention center. Mm -hmm. Um, But to go get the kids that are disengaged, bring them into school, get them engaged. And in some cases, I mean, you're talking overage freshmen, right? 17 years old, reading at second, third grade levels. And what what I think um, I wish more broadly people understood is the importance of those kids getting reconnected Right. That their inability to connect with school is not an indication of their brilliance. Right. And that those norm tests, like if they're coming and they're at a third grade level and they're advancing two years, a year or a year, you know, or they're making connections and they're no longer going to jail and they're getting on the right path. They may not get to a 10th grade proficiency rate, but we can get them. We could get them very close. (laughs) Right. Um, We could get them to a job. We could get them. Um, to be healthier and 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 hopeful, um, and so this idea of these multiple pathways, because I think that sometimes it gets boiled down to, because I do think this fits into safety, right? On um, the perception of safety, psychological safety, but that um, that we have schools that either show up like cookie cutters, or we think that um, the alternative solutions to schooling are destroying another thing versus they're creating opportunity for other students that don't fit, for students that don't fit here, here is some options for you. It's not this or get out, right? It's this or, or you know, this isn't working. We have some other solutions that might work better for you. No, absolutely. And I think that's the push and the way that we got to move, right? Because I think to your, and, and the idea that uh, getting folks to this 10th grade level, uh, uh, to your point, right? I used to say when I did that work, we used to work with a dot ed and all these folks like that. And I used to say to employers and other folks, there's some kids who are not going to get that, but they are going to raise a family. They are going to have, you know, and how do we make sure that they can participate? Yeah. And we don't, everything does not require these papers and these documents and these diplomas but all of these kids deserve an opportunity and a chance Mm -hmm. and we got to make sure that we give it to them. And I think again, it's this, this country and our culture is so caught up on things being a certain way that it's hard for us to maneuver and even imagine a world different because to your point, everything is an either or either, either we're going to all go to public schools and and they're going to be the same or we're going to create these models. And that's a, that's against the public school system. When you're, what you're saying it is not, it's a both end. Mm -hmm. And we're giving parents options on what's best for their kids. That's right. I mean, I remember saying at one point we were graduating, I think 50 to 60% of the black male students in our, in our district, in our schools. Right. I don't, I should know what the, I know the graduation rate has gone up, but there was a school or there's schools or whatever. Right. Like there's a dropout rate that, um is you know it's it's terrible right like so but when we're talking about how to get what's the four-year graduation rate what's the five-year graduation rate and I would always say like you do know that's only for the kids that are actually in school (laughs) right there is a percentage of young people that already made a decision to not show up at high school like in high school they didn't show up for ninth grade they didn't show up for 10th grade they didn't show up for 11th grade they're off our radar they're on someone else's radar and they're causing some trouble in some cases in our communities. And so, 
you know, as part of the work you're doing for those students that have fallen off the radar, except for in ways that we sort of, um, the patterns would show that we would just lock them up and get them out of our site, out of the community until they sort of get fixed and then come back. You know, what, what strategies, um, are there other strategies that we haven't discussed that you think would be good, like for our, for our community to understand about what to do with this particular population of students that um, are not connecting with, with those systems? Yeah, and I, I, so we, 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 we showcase what folks across the country are doing and that there's things and, and strategies that we believe could work. Uh, to your point, uh, it goes back to just this prevention models and thinking about uh, when we see kids uh, are, are disconnecting are being disconnected, we need to move in quickly, right? Uh, we need to understand to your point that this is not working for them and it's not just their fault. Some of this is on us and how do we shift that and how do we make that go? Uh, I'm really big on adult ed. I think adult education is a, a value as, as, as a thing that we need to put more value on because a lot of kids try to find their way back uh, that way, but uh, then there's a lot of stigmatism on getting your GED. Right. And we've got to get over that. Right. We've got to get over that as a, as a country and as a, people who have GEDs. We got to understand that we had to work hard, just as hard to get that uh, as, a, as a kid who got their high school diploma. Uh, so I think adult ed, we need to refresh it. We need to think about it differently and we need to bring it into the fold a whole lot more. I also think uh, that we need to be clear about how we think about community colleges and technical schools, because I think they're such a foundational place for young people. Uh, and because we have so marketed that the four-year college is the way to go, a lot of our kids don't think going to a two-year college or a trade school is gonna make them just as successful as uh, uh, our value. I don't even know as successful, but the value that's going to a four-year school. Uh, so I think making sure that we have clear pathways for young people who want to go plumb, be a plumber, who want to do HVAC, who, I mean, because those are jobs that we need. That's a retiring field and we need more people in that. Mm -hmm. And got to let young people know that there's good money to be made there and you can be your own boss, right? You can be an entrepreneur in those fields way more than you could by having a four-year degree and going and work in the fields that we go work in. So I think how we talk about education and how we talk about what's possible and what the possibilities are has got to shift. But I also think, you know, uh, there's a program that Mayor Nutter put together in Philadelphia called uh, Philly Corps. And it, it, it helped uh, uh, young men and women who were turning home get back connected and get a job and get into places. Uh, I love Youth Builds. I think Youth Build is one of the best programs out there. Uh, so I think those kind of programs just need to be more invested in, have more capacity uh, to help our young kids find their way. Uh, 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 and we got to be real clear that that's a road to success and, and, and that that alternative pathway is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing for you because this is better for you. Mm -hmm. So let's go get your GED and let's help you move along. Uh, and, you know, I talked about the program that I started with. It's called Project Empower and the Line Network. Uh, one of the things that I loved about what we were doing there is we were able to reconnect young people, give them a safe space to come and work on their GED because we did it all under one roof, while also helping them find jobs, but also helping them find mentors 
And we had a team of folks who really cared about each of those young kids. Uh, and then when that money goes away, because it was a grant, the city can't figure out how mm -hmm. to keep that up running. Uh, so we, we, we find, to your point, bright spots and we find hope, but we don't fully invest in it, right? We, we tried for a little bit and then we let it go. And then we wonder what happened to our kids because now they don't have a safe space to go anymore, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we've not changed things. We've not changed their conditions, but we just don't support and, and fund, right? So again, I just think uh, we've got to invest more in uh, alternative pathways for our young folks and, and create those. And we're trying to help at Cities United, one of our jobs is to elevate and showcase what's happening across the country and what's possible. Because uh, I think even in you all's community, um, we talk about, uh, and I'm probably not going to remember the names, the homeless shelter, the youth homeless shelter there. Uh, youth uh, Link. Youth Link, who I love, think they do amazing work. Uh, and they might be one of the few in the country that's like that. Uh, and we think, and because the youth population of uh, homeless, unhoused young people is rising, we need more of those, right? So we, we when we came to Philadelphia, we took people there because they need to see it. Uh, and we need more of those, right? Because we've got young people who that's just the reality for every day. And if we don't have anything formed, then we're missing the boat. Yeah, Dr. Heather there is 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 really outstanding. One of the one of the thoughts that I had while you were talking about those those pathways is a conversation that I had when I met Dr. Sharon Pierce, who runs our community college here. Um, mm -hmm. She's also a trustee on the Minneapolis Foundation Board, but we had uh, a really wonderful conversation that helped me sort of reframe a little bit the options. And she's basically saying that it's kind of like, if you're not good enough, smart enough, able to get your high school diploma, like I'm adding this, right? Um, then you go get your GED, <laughs> like I'm adding this piece. But that, you know, then if you're not um, equipped enough and ready enough for your four-year degree, then you go get a two-year degree, right? And so there's this value chain in the options that have the kids that do choose those options to feel less than, yep. right? The folks that chose the four-year. And then within the four-year, if you go to Harvard and then it's different than if you go here, right? Like there's all these value <laughs> choices in here. But what, what she was talking about is that there are, there are educational pathways that look very different right? Especially post high school, like there's probably, I mean, there's even high school choices, right? Um, um, PSEO, you know, taking college courses while you're in high school, just doing high school, you know, going the GED route. But once you get out of it, you have choices that are actually very fluid when you become an adult, yeah. right? So you yeah. can start out with a two-year and go to four-year. You could start well, four-year and say, I want to go back and get this, this two, you know, a certification, um, I want to, you get a certification. Now you want to go get a business degree. Like they're just very fluid choices that help you advance on your own pathway. Um, and all of them should be viable options. And we should know that as we go, as we mature, as we see what's coming up in our lives, we make different choices about how we want to opt in. And I think the judgments around those choices can sometimes interfere with people choosing them. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way you just uh, laid that out. Because if you if we were able to say that to a young person, think about in the ninth grade, you showed me all of these pathways without your value judgment on them, 
Right. right. And that to a young person, when you graduate high school, you have all of these options. Right? Yeah. We just need to get you through this part so that you can go take advantage of all of those things, right? That's where you get the hope, right? That's where you get the vision. That's where you get, oh, I can be any of these things. And I think part of it for me, when I think about pathways, it's like I'm saying to our community colleges and other places, put some numbers on that so people can see, right? If you get this certificate within three to five years, this is what you could be making, Mm -hmm. right? Because money is a value for us, right? Money is a thing that we need to have to survive. So if you're telling young people, like they just started this new program here with our uh, gas and electricity place, uh, uh, Louisville Gas and Electricity, where they got a 10 week or 10, I think it's a 10 week uh, linesman training. Mm -hmm. And they're saying to these young people that if you go through this, you can come out making 65 to 100K in 10 weeks. And it's only going to cost you 8,000 to get through it. But there's also money that can pay for it to get you through it. But because we don't talk to our young people about all of these possibilities and taking risk and being open to, you know, uh, things that might seem foreign to you, uh, we won't have too many young black kids that's a block away from the, the college where this is happening showing up. Yeah, look, I have this. So my um, 18-year-old Rylan is in an HVAC um, apprenticeship program right now. And um, my son, um, Malik, his air conditioning went out at his house. We, <laughs> we tried to go the traditional route. <laughs> they were cutting up with us a little bit. So we, we called Kevin Lindsay, who owns an HVAC company. Um, to come and fix it. He shows up that day, comes the next day. Rylan goes to just observe. I don't know why he was over at the house or whatever. By the end of the day, Kevin had invited him into an apprenticeship program, right? So I promise you the same week, he's been picking him up two or three times wow. a week to take him to go on jobs so he can learn from him and get him in this program, right? And, you know, we're right. equipped, but... I need a community that also sees who he is and what's capable. And he needs to see what he wants to do himself. And so it's just amazing uh, to me how everything worked out like it needed to be. Um, And, and that, you know, and my father-in-law's a lineman. And so, you know, he's like, I need to be electrician. And I'm like, you don't even, (laughs) you know, so, but before we go, one of the questions that, that I do have for you, because um, in our work, we have this Fund for Safe Communities that is looking to reduce violence in community. It aims to reduce community violence, but there's also a focus on um, improving police uh, criminal justice reforms that are embedded in the same strategy. And so oftentimes people see them as separate, community safety and um, policing, and I'm wondering if you see them as separate or do you see them as part of um, the total sort of community safety um, model or how, how do you see those two issues? Yeah, I think they're because of where we are and, and the nature of where we are. Now, if you were asking me to develop a public safety structure and model without having anything that I have to work with, like if you just came to me today, and say, hey, we never had a public safety strategy ever in the country or in the world, would police be a part of that? I don't believe so and I don't think so. Or the way that we see policing today, they would not be. 
but because police are here, uh, you've got to figure out what the structure is and what their main task is in creating public safety in our communities and in, in, in the country that we live in. Uh, so I think it's a both and to your point that you've got to be able to, because I think what we're trying to do is to say there is an alternative. Let's help build it out. Let's make it work uh, uh, so that we can get to a place where when we think about public safety, it's a broad spectrum uh, and police have their role to play, community have their role to play, and all other sectors have their role to play. Uh, but I think because of where we are today as a country, it's almost impossible to do this work without engaging police uh, and having them at the table and having them a part of the conversation. Because with education reform and police reform, we've been trying that for decades, mm -hmm. uh, and it does not seem to get us where we need to be. So I just had a, a, a moment in my head, which was we talk about alternatives to policing, but really I think what we're talking about is an ecosystem that comes together to improve community safety, right? Because some of like having proper uh, mental health services, having schools that work, having all these things are part of an ecosystem, it, it, yes. right? That allows for people to move through life in, in a way that is more uh, equal, safer, okay. um, respectful, um, right. inclusive, you know, all of these things, right? And so even the alternative is like this or this versus having um, things work together towards the same end. Yeah, and I, and I think part of that though too has been real clear on what the function of policing is mm -hmm. and, and getting them to understand that they need to move differently. They need to be better. They need to be more just. They need to do all of those things uh, 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 so that folks can trust them to be a part of this system, right? Because mm -hmm. right now, in Black and Brown communities, the trust of police is so lacking that it's hard for folks to even have a public safety conversation that includes them. Uh, and they're so caught up in their stance of what it is they do and who they are. Uh, and this is as a collective. There's individuals and in all of these things that see world different, but as a whole, Police believe that that's their main responsibility, right? That that's what they do. And they believe the other stuff uh, don't work. Uh, uh, so it's like, we've got to get to a place where we can to coexist, but coexist in a way that we all have the same view of what public safety is and how we get there, mm -hmm. right? Because the way I think about it, the more we invest in prevention and intervention work, the more we invest in all the things that we've talked about, the less need we would have for police, right? So then what do they do and who do they become? Do we still put aside all of the money that we put aside every year for policing if they're not being used as much? Yeah. Right, so there's this whole idea of how do we shift our, our mindsets around what public safety is, I think will help us get to a new place. Yeah, I mean, I think any sort of change management will say though, it will cost more money before it costs less money. And I think people wanted to call cause less money before we have a full full infrastructure build out, right? Um, you know what what a complicated a complicated time we're living in. By the way, I was really looking forward to coming to the annual uh, meeting that you pulled together in Louisville because I needed to go see that Muhammad Ali 
<laughs> and, and COVID really got my whole year out of pocket. So um, when we're just gonna have to schedule a meeting here where we can do some work together and do it at the Ali Center. I Let's mean, can we please do that? I'm like, I just knew I was gonna be there. I told my daddy and everything, and I was like, oh man. So, um, do you have? Are you guys are gonna go back to the kind of sort of the annual gatherings? Yeah, so we're looking at doing it this year. We're uh, going to be doing it in partnership with Denver. Uh, it's going to be kind of a hybrid. Uh, the team, the board, uh, some of our young leaders will be on the ground, but the rest of it will be virtual, okay. depending on what this new Delta variant do and other stuff. So the goal now is to kind of do a hybrid model, and hopefully in 2022, we'll be able to pull everybody back uh, so that we can come back together. But we're waiting to see what this COVID does and, and how the world respond and uh, if we can get more people to uh, get vaccinated and get their shots. Yeah, I got a couple in, in my 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 home team that is, you know, <laughs> my, my body, my rights. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> my two older boys are that way. My younger son looking at them both like they crazy. I know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I do, I'm doing my best. Um, if, if folks want to um, learn more about your work, where would they go find more information about Cities United? They can check us out online, uh, citiesunited.org. Uh, social media, we're on platforms, I think, at Cities United. Uh, and they can check us out on all three of those. I think we're on uh, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, so they can check us out on all those platforms. And they can always email me at anthony at citiesunited.org. Uh, with any questions they have as well. But, you know, we're always looking forward to catching up with folks. Good deal. And as as we wrap, I just want to um, make a plug for people that are interested in this work to actually go and, and check out uh, the website and the social platforms. I know, um, you know, me attending that, that annual meeting was the launch of our advisory committee for our Fund for Safe Communities. Um, I invited uh, the young men that went on that trip with us. Yeah. Um, from the city, um, including my son Malik, um, to become advisors on um, that committee and their voices have um, spoken so loudly and their expertise and knowledge nice. on this. But being in that, um, that room focused on how do we reduce violence and improve safeties for brown and black communities um, was something that um, is very rare uh, to be part of a, a, a community of people that are, is reflective um, that can talk about the problem while being completely respectful of the community and, and the people um, was, was it, it just lightened my whole heart <laughs> on, on a topic that is really, really heavy, right? To be part of a right. community that's focused on making sure that we all survive and thrive um, is quite remarkable. So thank you for your leadership. Um, and I appreciate you being in this conversation with me. Thank you. I appreciate you. Uh, we really enjoy uh, our partnership, not only with Minneapolis, but also with you and the amazing people who we got to meet through Minneapolis. Uh, so really appreciate this. And that's Anthony Smith from Cities United and our host, Shonda Smithbaker. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast or looking for ways to do more, please contact me. You can find my information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org. Thank you to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Sue Pat Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening.
and I'll talk to you soon.